Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Well, our speaker is actually just a dear friend of mine, and he studied mechanical engineering and then went on to get his Master's of Theology from the Dominican House of Studies. And I was going to tell you the full title of his master's thesis, but that I couldn't speak it all in one breath. So essentially, it was on the Thomistic theology on work, which he's going to expound upon a little bit here. And his lovely wife, Ellen, is also watching. So please welcome Jonathan. Thank you, Andy, for that kind introduction. And also thank you to Angela and Teresa who organized all of this and figured out all the logistics. So that's wonderful. And thank you to you all for coming out and seeing our farm and learning about what we do. And I hope it's been a, a fun morning so far and that I can offer one or two pieces of insightful information that maybe you can take home with you. So I, there's kind of two questions here that I want to try to answer in some way. The first one being, you know, why as Catholics should we care about farming? And then the second one is, you know, assuming we do care about it, what would it look like to approach farming from a Catholic perspective? Kind of how can our, our Catholic faith inform how we think about and approach farming? So those are kind of the two guiding questions that I hope to answer in some way, at least. Um, so I think that first one, why should we care about farming as Catholics? So three, three thoughts there. The first, uh, it's not necessarily a Catholic answer, but at least it's a human answer, which is that farming produces food, and food is what we need to stay alive and, and be healthy and flourish as human beings. Um, so I think we should, you know, give at least some consideration as to where our food is coming from. So I think uh, a second thought would be, you know, Catholics, we care about um, ethics and morality, and that kind of governs a huge range of things. Basically, any intentional human action is considered part of the moral life, and farming is definitely a, an intentional human action. But, you know, I want to think about that in terms of not as ethics and morality as primarily about sort of obligations and duties, like, you know, what are we required by the moral law to do as farmers, but as, uh, you know, as the fathers, church fathers thought about it, as the New Testament thinks about it as St. Thomas Aquinas thought about it, which is a way of directing our actions towards a happy life. Happiness now, but ultimately our ultimate happiness, which is the loving vision of God. So how can we order our, our actions in that way? And how can we think about farming from that kind of perspective? Um, but if that's a little too bit abstract, we can zoom in a little bit and think about then, how, how can we think about farming from a Catholic perspective, what our faith teaches about the human person, about the rest of creation, um, and about society. Then the rest of my talk is going to kind of shift to our second question then. Okay, so if I've maybe convinced you that we should care about farming, what would a Catholic vision of that look like? And so I'll focus on the farmer 
so kind of uh, a Catholic anthropological vision, the rest of creation, so our farm, and then uh, society, those whom we, whom we serve. So on the first point, the farmer, it's fundamental to Catholic anthropology that we are a unified being. We are embodied persons. Our body is not accidental to who we are. It's essential to who we are. Um, of course, it's not the only part about us. Uh, we also have, you know, an immaterial soul, which is perfectly unified and united and, and organizes our body. And so, you know, whatever I think is my whole person thinking, and whatever I do, if I hammer something, it's my whole person is engaged in that. There's not this duality between my, my physicalness and my intellectual life. And I think one of the beautiful things about, you know, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, which, you know, often gets talked about in the context of sort of intimate relations, but it's a much bigger picture, you know, it's theology of the whole, the whole body and what that means. And I think one of the big, beautiful truths that he expresses well there is that we express the truth through our body. So it's not just the ideas we communicate through our words, but our, our physical actions are also there to communicate truth. So I'll, I'll come back to that as well in a little bit. So we see, you know, we see even in the first chapter of Genesis that Revelation tells us that we're made for using our bodies to work, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So if, if Genesis is kind of the... the goldmine of Old Testament's anthropology, right in the beginning we see that we are made for work. And then there's this wonderful quote from Aquinas where he says, it's plain from the very disposition of the body that man has a natural order to manual labor, for which reason it is said in Job that man is born for labor as a bird is born to fly. So there's something about our bodies that is naturally inclined to doing work. And I think you know, we can experience that too, that when we accomplish some sort of physical task, it's very rewarding. So I think that's, you know, important to think about in terms of, in terms of our work and sort of farming definitely engages the body. But, you know, we're also intellectual and volitional beings. We have intellect and will. So it's important that our work engage those aspects of us, that we're not just sort of repeating the same physical tasks over and over, day in, day out which would not be engaging of the whole person. But, you know, farming is a very mind-engaging activity because if you're going to do it well, you are constantly observing the things around you and seeing if the actions you're taking are having a positive effect or a negative effect on those things. So it very much engages the mind. And, of course, again, there's not this duality, so our intellectual activity isn't separated either from our body. We learn through all of our senses. So there's a lot to be learned from just using our hands to, to work on things. So it's very engaging. And of course, there's also lots of decisions that have to be made around the farm. If it's going to be a successful uh, from a farming standpoint and from a business standpoint. Um, so it's very engaging of the will as well. You know, I think farming is something we should care about from a, uh, a human perspective just because it's a very uh, rewarding and satisfying approach to work. We should also care about it from that perspective because 
as, as humans, we, to flourish in life, we have to develop good virtues, and we develop virtues through repeated actions. That's kind of how we build up these different habits, um, and virtues just being those good habits that, that lead us to a happy life. And so the way we go about our farming, too, is going to impact the kind of virtues we develop. If we treat the external world, especially other sentient beings like animals, as simply commodities and, and things to be treated however we see fit, then that's going to affect our affections and emotions as regards other living things. And that's, that can't not have an effect on the way we see other people um, and how we treat them as well. So I think, you know, the way we farm also uh, doesn't just affect the world outside of us, but it also in fact affects our, our sort of interior life. Then some thoughts on, on creation. I really love Aquinas's Trinitarian theology and the, and the sort of the depth and the beauty of it. And there's some aspects of that that I think are, are connected to farming. So just to touch on a few primer points, I guess, you know, it's fundamental to, to our faith that right, the Trinity is one and three, and that the persons are distinguished from each other by their relations. So the Son is only not the Father because he's the Son, not because he has anything different than the Father or the Father has anything different than him, but simply it's, it's the relationship of Father to Son that distinguishes the persons, and, and the same with the Holy Spirit. And so Aquinas will talk about how when God creates or, or acts in his creation, it's all three persons doing the same action. It's not like God the Father says, all right, I'm going to contribute this, son, why don't you contribute that, and Holy Spirit, you can throw something in the mix too. No, it's all three persons acting as one, and yet we can also talk about attributing certain aspects of that causality to the persons because of the relations they have to each other. So, to, to, to flesh that out a little bit, I have this quote from, from the Summa where Aquinas says, talking about created things, therefore, as it is a created substance, it represents the cause and principle. And so in that manner, it shows the person of the father who is the principle from no principle. He doesn't proceed from any of the other persons. According as it has a form and species, so according as it is a certain kind of living thing, or, or just being, it represents the word as the form of the thing made by art is from the conception of the craftsman. According as it has relation of order, so as things are related to each other in, in creation, it represents the Holy Ghost inasmuch as he is love because the order of the effect to something else is from the will of the creator. So we see Aquinas kind of seeing creation as this sort of dim reflection of the Trinity itself that there's certain features of the, re the, the created world that re reflect the relations of the persons. So that's kind of a, a really beautiful way to think about the world in which we live and the world in which we work. So he'll also go on to talk about how there's a twofold cre uh, purpose to creation. So the rest of the created world, uh, just by its existence, praises God. So the tree in the woods that nobody ever sees is praising God as a tree, as a reflection of the, the mind and will of its creator. Uh, the other purpose of, of creation is to serve human needs. So I'll, I'll touch a little bit more on each of those aspects. So 
every every living thing has a nature, and that seems like maybe a throwaway line, but if you think about it in contrast to some other philosophies that have been put out there, especially beginning with Descartes and uh, Robert Boyle and uh, Bacon, uh, there was this this movement towards thinking about creation as uh, mechanical, so that everything is just sort of the uh, a composition of, of parts that are inputs and outputs and can be quantified. So we think of you know uh, uh, cows as machines, and you'll even you can even find sort of diagrams from from this time period of, of people drawing cows and sort of drawing the internal parts of a cow almost like a combustion engine. So to then, you know, to insist that no, living things have natures means that there's something more to, to each being than simply its composition of parts. There's, there's a unity to it, just as there's a unity to us. And so that is the way living out its nature is how the rest of the world praises God. And we, you know, we see that even in the Canticle of Daniel, part of the, the Liturgy of the Hours comes up fairly regularly, you know. Seas and rivers, bless the Lord. Dolphins and all you water creatures. Beasts of the fields, bless the Lord. Just by being a chicken and doing what chickens do, they give praise to their creator in that way. So I think that's something, you know, and I'll go into this a little bit more, but that that is something we should take into account as we think about farming, that we can act in a way that uh, encourages these beings to live out their their God-given nature or in a way that frustrates that. Uh, if, a, if a chicken's in a confined house, they will uh, cut off the beaks, uh, you know, right when the chicks are born so that they can't cannibalize each other. But of course, a chicken doesn't have a beak for the purpose of having that beak cut off. It has a beak so that it can forage and eat grass and eat bugs and do what chickens do. Um, just like pigs, they don't really have noses so much as they have shovels on the ends of their faces. If you see a pig going at the ground, it's really impressive. And the end of their nose actually can move independently of the rest of their head. So they can stick it into the ground and, and use that end to dig up, which is a pretty cool thing. But when, when pigs are kept in confinement on concrete floors, they have to put rings into their noses so that they don't go attack the other pigs. So that, that's kind of two different visions there. That's, that's thinking about chickens and pigs as machines to have certain inputs and certain outputs, or thinking of them as, as things with given natures, essences uh, that are to be respected. Then we can see, all right, so we have these individual things, but there's also a beautiful order to all of this, uh, what we might call a hierarchy of creation. So the health of our soil, all those microorganisms that are down in the earth uh, doing all the hard work, they promote healthy plant life. And the healthy plant life will promote healthy animal life. And the healthy animal life will provide for healthy human life. And if we're healthy and can get out and do our work well, then we can go back and promote good soil life. So there's this beautiful hierarchy, uh, but it's, it's, it's a symbiotic hierarchy where the good of the soil actually leads to the good of the plants and the good of the plants to the animals, etc. So I think that's a really helpful way for us to think about how we use creation. Because yes, you know, when the, when the cattle are grazing in the pasture, they're ripping out grass and chewing that and digesting it. And so 
you know, they're essentially damaging the plant in order to consume it. But by eating that grass, they are pulling that grass sort of into their good, and the, the pasture can participate in, in a higher good. And so likewise, when we have to slaughter our chickens, yes, you know, we are killing that chicken. That chicken can no longer do what chickens do. It no longer expresses its chickenness, but it's by drawing it into our life, by consuming it, that that chicken being is, in a sense, participating in human good. And actually, then when we give praise to God, in a sense, that, that chicken's praise is then, when it was just a chicken, is now drawn, in a sense, you know, into the more perfect praise of the Creator. I think that's like a helpful way to think about the relationship between other living things and human beings. So, yes, you know, we do have to kill animals to eat them, but it's not done in a way that sort of totally destroys their participation in 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 the praise of, of, of God. So then, you know, when we think about this order of creation and this hierarchy, I think it, uh, it connects very well with uh, the church's overall vision of ethics. What I mean is that the way we approach our animals by observing very carefully what leads to their flourishing and what doesn't is essentially the same approach to sort of human natural law that the church teaches. For example, Aquinas will talk about how part of the reason that relations outside of marriage is is a moral evil is because it doesn't promote the then caring and raising and educating of the child that could be conceived. So it's not, she's not just focusing on the act itself, but also it's, it's, it's bigger picture. So we can also see what, what activities the animals do that lead to their overall flourishing. Um, so cattle thrive off of eating grass. They are healthy and can reproduce and are comfortable and happy. They will also eat grain if you give it to them. Uh, it's very sweet to their palate, but we can observe when we feed cattle grain that it leads to all sorts of health issues for cattle. So that same kind of approach to seeing what is good for human beings and the human natural law, I think, is the same way we can think about animals. And so I think there's sort of a great coherency to the way that the church thinks about, about ethics in that. Finally, on to the third part, that was the, uh, the creation or the farm part, then on to the community. So, you know, farming when done well should promote particular human goods and the common good. The most obvious particular human good would be human health. You know, food is what we need to be healthy and food can be raised in a way that promotes our health or, or doesn't. One example of what we're trying to do with the pasture-based farming, uh, there's vitamin K2, which is very good for your bone health, your heart health, and your brain health. And there's really like two main sources of K2. It's either fermented foods, especially fermented vegetables, or grass-fed meats, especially the fat of grass-fed meat. So healthy animals produce healthy fat, which is healthy for us to eat. You know, we're trying to farm in a way that hopefully is, is promoting our customers' health. But then we can also, I think, think about how farming uh, can benefit the common human good. Maybe the most obvious one is, is 
the family, which is a common good. Everybody in the family sort of benefits and shares in the family itself. And so farming allows families to work together, spend more time together. But of course, we have to, you know, approach farming in a certain way for that to happen. Because if you are mostly just using combines and working around manure lagoons, it's very dangerous work and not work that you want your children to be involved with. But if you kind of bring farming down to a little bit more of a human scale, there are all sorts of tasks that kids of all ages can participate in and work alongside their parents. It also, I think, can form more widespread community bonds. Um, so we, you know, we process chickens here once a week. We couldn't do it just by ourselves. So we have a crew of about 15 high school and community college um, local students here who come out once a week and help us process. And there have been, you know, just friendships that have grown out of that. So I think farming in a way that actually requires extra hands is a good way to bring people in your community together and work towards a, a common goal, which is a great way to sort of build those bonds of friendship. And I think it also is helpful in that it reveals that we are interdependent with one another, which sometimes can be obscured with a sort of very globalized, hidden chain of distribution uh, where we don't even, we don't know maybe even what country our food is coming from. We're still dependent on those farmers in Brazil, but we don't really see that when we go to the store. So I think farming can be done in a way that helps us recognize and acknowledge our, our human codependence. And then finally, I think it also contributes or can contribute to the common good of beauty. You know, I think there's a lot of ways in which beautiful spaces have not been a focus um, in the last century, in architecture, uh, in music. That there hasn't been a big focus on, on beauty, maybe more on sort of a, a utility of things. But I think utility, productivity, and beauty don't have to be in competition with one another. I think there's, there's a productivity and an efficiency to the created order that is also beautiful. And so we can create beautiful spaces while still trying to be efficient and productive and, and contribute to our, our material needs. And so by farming in a way that creates beautiful landscapes and having those farms open to anybody who wants to come and enjoy, you know, enjoy nature in contrast to, you know, a lot of big factory farms, you're not allowed to go in. There's a lot of risk associated with that. They just want to keep people out. Um, so it's kind of a dividing and a closing off versus encouraging people in to share in, in God's creation. And so I think in all of those ways, how farming can contribute to particular human goods and the common goods, that kind of brings us back to our first topic, the farmer, because, you know, as satisfying as good work is, not just farming, but any, any good work, you know, that's not where we derive our ultimate happiness and satisfaction, but that comes, you know, through loving God and loving our fellow man. So if our work, you know, can contribute to other people's health, well-being, and happiness, then our work can be an opportunity to express our charity uh, for our neighbor 
and that's you know that's ultimately the most the most rewarding thing to do in life. Just a couple takeaways since it would be unrealistic to think that everybody's going to leave here today and go buy a farm. Um, what might be some uh, ideas that could be incorporated into your own life, kind of where you are right now? So one would be to just support the kinds of farms and the kinds of other businesses that promote uh, a vision and understanding of the world that is the kind of world that you want to live in. Another idea might just be to work with things that aren't just human products. So that can be going out and planting a vegetable garden or fruit trees or berries and working with those things and trying to understand them and figuring out why it didn't work the first time you did it, which is usually how it goes. <laughs> um, or it could be you know, building things out of wood, which every species of wood has its own particular natures and it... Uh, are suitable for some applications and not for others. And so kind of building things out of wood is also a way to sort of be drawn into understanding the world outside of ourselves. Also be just, you know, teaching children and grandchildren about where food comes from and how it's raised and encouraging them to explore manual crafts and trades, which are not sort of always highest on people's like priority list of where they'd like to see their kids end up. But there's a great satisfaction that can come from those trades. And the other plus is that uh, they can't be exported. So your plumber uh, has to live near you if he's going to fix your pipes when they bust. So good job, security. Um, but anyway, those are just some, some thoughts. And now happy to open the floor to questions and maybe if Jesse wants to come up too and you can shoot all the hard questions his way. <laughs> but thank you. Uh, for further study, I just want you to write down or if you don't have a pen and paper, just put in your mind five words and these five words are going to remind you of five different talks in our library that continue themes that Jonathan and Jesse have started here, okay? So I'll just give you the list of names and then I'll give you what these talks are. So the first word is cycles. Cycles, like uh, going around and around, okay? Cycles. Second, nature. Cycles, nature. Beauty is the third word, beauty. Fourth word is cheese. That's the one you're not going to forget. And then the fifth word, common. Common. If you put any of these words in our online library, it'll pull up these talks. But the talks, the first one, living the liturgy, the cycles of nature in the liturgical calendar. So how the natural... Uh, calendar fits in with the liturgical calendar. That second one for nature was human nature and the virtuous life. That's going to be exploring this notion of what is personhood that Jonathan was talking about. That we're not just a kind of like ghost floating around and we're not just a chunk of matter, but we're this weird hybrid. The third talk is the nature of beauty in the Catholic tradition, beauty and sacred art. So exploration of that theme of beauty and the principles 
that we can use in studying it. And fourth is G.K. Chesterton's essay on cheese. This is going to explore more of that theme of uh, where your food is coming from. Dr. Cutterback gives that talk, and he, he gives anecdotes about the difference between Wonder Bread and his wife's bread that she makes, and it's, it's, uh, it's really fun to listen to. And then fifth, the common good, learning to live as a Catholic in society. So cycles, nature, beauty, cheese, common. Okay, So these are things that you can take on your own and kind of pursue what was started here uh, a little bit further. God bless you guys. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.